back to Understanding Childhood Cancer. I'm Dr. Jeff and this is my podcast. It's mostly to provide information to parents of children who are undergoing treatment for cancer or leukaemia, but it might be of interest to anyone else involved. Anyway, today I'm going to talk about blood transfusions. And in particular, I'm going to talk about transfusions of red blood cells. You know, we can do transfusions of all sorts of things. We can do red blood cells, we can do platelets, we can do plasma. Occasionally, well, rarely, we do white blood cell transfusions. But today, I'm just going to talk about red blood cell transfusions. And when you work in a childhood cancer unit, well, you give a lot of red blood cell transfusions. There's a number of reasons why patients end up with a low level of red blood cells. Uh, They include having leukemia in the bone marrow. That can stop the bone marrow from making blood cells properly. It can occur if bleeding occurs from somewhere. But by far the most common reason we end up having to give blood transfusions is because our chemotherapy damages the patient's bone marrow temporarily and so there's a period where they don't make red blood cells enough and then their red blood cell level drops and drops and drops and eventually it's too low and then we have to give a blood transfusion. So first let me explain a few things about red blood cells and so on. First to explain what do red blood cells do anyway. Well red blood cells role in life is to carry oxygen around the body. Red blood cells are full of this chemical called haemoglobin. And when the red blood cells travel through the lungs, there's a lot of oxygen in the lungs, well, the haemoglobins get loaded up with oxygen molecules. So now the red blood cells are nice bright red, carrying lots of oxygen. They go back to the heart from the lungs and then the heart pumps them to the rest of the body, and the red blood cells get to the tissues, and then, for very complicated reasons, they offload the oxygen molecules, and then the oxygen diffuses into our cells, and that's what keeps our cells going. So that's about all that red blood cells do most of the time, carry oxygen around your body. Needless to say, that's a fairly important thing to be doing. I don't want to be cruel to these poor red blood cells. They have a very valid and important role in life, But that's about the main thing that they do. Next thing to know is that our bone marrow makes red blood cells and the standard lifespan of a red blood cell is meant to be about 120 days. So that means if you stop making red blood cells all of a sudden for several days, well, your red blood cell count won't drop that quickly because the existing red blood cells have to slowly die off, as they are normally doing, but they're dying off slowly. You know, it's taking 120 days for each red cell to die. So if you give chemotherapy, the red blood cell count won't drop that quickly. Now that's different to platelets and white cells. Platelets and white cells, they drop within a week or two or three, and then they recover No, red blood cells tend to just slowly drift down, down, down over the weeks and sometimes they drift back up and sometimes they don't and sometimes we end up having to do a blood transfusion. Next thing to know is how we measure red blood cells in the bloodstream. 
Well, the main thing we measure and the main number we use is something called the haemoglobin level. Remember haemoglobin, that's the stuff in the red cells that carries your oxygen. Well, a very basic test that the blood count machine does is measure the haemoglobin concentration in the blood. Now, another way to report your red cell count is something called the hematocrit. I'll just mention hematocrit. They use it more often in America, if you ask me. We barely use it where I come from, but it's always reported on the machine. But we mostly talk about hemoglobins, not hematocrits. The hematocrit is what you get if you take a tube of blood and then you centrifuge it. And so the blood cells go down the bottom and the plasma sits on top. Now, if you look at what percentage of the total volume is made up by the red blood cells, that's the hematocrit. And so I can't remember what a normal hematocrit should be, about 45, something like that. But if you had a very low level of red blood cells, the hematocrit might be 25 or 20. Now, where I come from, we mostly talk in hemoglobin levels. So if we want to know a patient's red blood cell levels in their blood, we say, well, what's the hemoglobin? And it used to be that a normal haemoglobin was about between about 11 and 15. And then they changed the units. So now it's between 110 and 150 in our lab. But it varies from lab to lab, whether they're talking in that 11 to 15 sort of range or the 110 to 150 range. It's all to do with whether you're measuring how much haemoglobin's in 100 mils or how much is in a litre. Anyway, most of the time... People are going through life with a haemoglobin of about 11 or 12 or 13 or 14, something like that. It's usually slightly lower in females. After patients are given chemotherapy, then very often we end up doing some blood counts in the weeks afterwards to monitor what's happening to the blood count. And we're looking at the white cells and the platelets and things, but today I'm talking about red cells. So we're particularly looking at the haemoglobin level. And like I said, we will often see the haemoglobin level drift down during chemotherapy. And then the question arises, well, how far can we let it drift down before we feel the need to give a blood transfusion? Now remember I said that a normal haemoglobin is about 11 or 12 or 15, something like that. Well, children can tolerate the haemoglobin level dropping down well below that level before they start to need a blood transfusion. So, for instance, if the haemoglobin dropped down from 120 or 12 down to, say, 90 or 9, again, depending on your units, if it dropped down to 9, well, they might feel a little bit tired, but in day-to-day life, a lot of kids would feel quite all right at a haemoglobin level of 9, or even if it dropped down to 8. Now, bigger children or teenagers and adults, they don't handle it as well as the little kids. The little kids can put up with a low haemoglobin. It can drop down to seven. Sometimes it can drop down to six and they still feel fine. Whereas a lot of adults, if they had a haemoglobin of six or seven, I don't know, I think they'd pass out every time they stood up. So it's really when the haemoglobin level gets down below eight that you start looking at things. And often... It's only when it gets below about seven that you might think, ah, we better give a blood transfusion. These things are variable. Of course, we need to know, well, what are we to expect? Is the patient's blood count about to recover 
Are they about to start making red cells and so avoid a blood transfusion? Do they feel bad with this low haemoglobin level? And what do I mean by feeling bad? Well, some kids will complain of feeling lightheaded, particularly when they stand up, feeling a bit dizzy. Some get a bit of a headache. Some just feel tired and washed out and lethargic and can barely do anything. These are all symptoms of a low haemoglobin level, and they will vary from one kid to another. And children that have been on a long chemotherapy protocol, they come to recognise the symptoms of a low haemoglobin, and they'll come and tell you, you know, Doc, I think I need a blood transfusion. This is how I felt last time, and the transfusion fixed it. Most of the time, we'll end up giving a blood transfusion around those levels of haemoglobin, but unless there was bleeding occurring, it's not really that acutely dangerous most of the time to have a lowish haemoglobin. So a haemoglobin of about 7, it might make the child feel tired and washed out. It's not generally acutely dangerous, again, unless they're about to undergo major surgery or there's bleeding or they've got breathing difficulties or some other problem going on. But by and large, it's not an emergency to get a blood transfusion in. It's not a dangerous situation, but we don't want it to drop lower and lower and lower. And when we see haemoglobins in the fives or even lower than that, well, we're starting to think, gee, we better get a blood transfusion in here. It is possible for patients to become more unwell as the anemia gets very severe. Now, a question might be on your mind, well, why don't we just give a blood transfusion? Why do we have to wait for it to get down so low? What's the problem with a blood transfusion? That's a very fair question. So, first key consideration is that we have to be responsible to people who donate blood. So volunteer blood donors, they give blood for the hospital system to use to treat patients who need a blood transfusion. These are generous people. They're giving up their time. They're having needles stuck in their veins. They're feeling, I don't know, maybe they feel a bit washed out for the next day. But we really do have to respect their generosity and we have to be responsible in the way we use the blood that they've donated. The next consideration is, well, what are the risks to the patient of having a blood transfusion? Well, first off, there's the inconvenience of having a blood transfusion. When you give a unit of blood, you normally give it over some hours. So if you're giving a bag of blood to an adult patient, you're normally going to take three or four hours to slowly drip the red blood cells in. So that's a bit of a nuisance. But more importantly, we have to think about more serious risks associated with blood transfusions. Now I'll start by saying that red blood cell transfusions are very safe. However, we all know about the experiences in the 1980s when viruses were transmitted in blood transfusions. So back then there were viruses that we didn't even know existed and one of them was the AIDS virus, the HIV and no one knew about this virus. And among the people who developed HIV infection back then were people who received it in a blood transfusion. Now these days, blood donors are screened very stringently in order to avoid transmitting any viruses in blood transfusions. They're tested for all sorts of things, for hepatitis, for AIDS, for other viruses... 
There's all sorts of questions about their health and lifestyle, etc., to make sure that they're suitable to be blood donors. And blood banks can give you estimates of, you know, what are the risks of getting some virus from a blood transfusion. And the risk of a viral infection from a blood transfusion these days is estimated to be very low. So we think of the blood supply as being very safe now in the developed world. However, we have to remain conscious of the fact that we don't know everything. And in my opinion, it may be that there's things we don't know about yet. There may be viruses that don't even exist in our community yet. There's all sorts of considerations of unknown factors. And so for these reasons, I feel like we should give blood transfusions and platelet transfusions really when we need to, rather than just giving them as soon as the haemoglobin drops just a little bit. Again, in a very modern blood bank and hospital system, the risks of viral infection from a blood transfusion are now very low. Nonetheless, it seems wise to me to use blood transfusions when we really need to. There are things we might not know about, and so I think it's safest to try to limit the use of blood products to the situations where we really need to give them. There are other things that can go wrong with a blood transfusion. Some patients develop fevers because of a sort of an allergic type reaction to another person's blood. Some people can have other reactions to a blood transfusion, a hemolytic blood transfusion reaction, for instance. Blood can be contaminated with bacteria. Again, that's pretty uncommon, but it's something. And so that's why we let the haemoglobin level drop down lower than you might think. Firstly, most kids can handle it. And secondly, it seems safest to restrict blood product use to when we really need it. So now let me talk about how we go about doing a blood transfusion. The patient's had their blood count done. We've looked at the haemoglobin level and we've seen that it's, say, 6.5 or 7. And the child's saying, hey, I feel awful. Yeah, I feel a bit faint, a bit lightheaded. So we decide, yeah, you need a blood transfusion. So what we need to do first off is cross-match the blood. So you're all familiar with the blood groups. You know, you can be A or B or O, and you can be A positive or B positive or O negative. Those are the main sort of blood groups you hear about. Now, in addition to those, there's a whole bunch of other blood groups. There's these things called the minor blood groups, and there's dozens and dozens of these blood groups, and so we have to find a unit of blood for an individual that's compatible with them. And when you do a cross-match, you have to send a blood sample from the patient to the blood bank. And they are really strict about that blood sample. You have to take the blood sample and label it, and people have to sign and verify that this blood came from this patient, and the blood bank wants to know for sure that nobody's mixed up the tubes and no one's mislabeled anything, and it's critically important because if you give the wrong blood transfusion to someone, bad things happen. So that's why people are very strict about labelling blood samples when we're cross-matching blood. So the blood sample will go to the blood bank. And by the way, the blood bank usually won't believe you if you tell them that the patient's O negative or A positive. They basically just won't believe you unless it's an extreme emergency. They will always repeat all of the testing and 
go ahead and cross-match from the fresh sample. So they'll go and confirm what the patient's blood group is. They'll test for certain other minor blood groups, maybe. And what they'll do eventually is they'll take a bag of blood that they're planning to give to the patient and they'll actually mix some of the cells from the bag of blood and some of the patient's cells together and check that they don't have a big argument. So this is called cross-matching. It's checking that the given bag of blood we're going to use is compatible with the patient who's going to receive it. And this takes a period of time. I don't know how long it takes. Probably an hour or so. Probably can be done faster in an emergency, after a car accident, if there's bleeding, for instance. But most of the time, I don't know, we allow an hour or two for them to cross-match the blood and get it ready. The next thing that happens when we're giving blood to children on chemotherapy is we irradiate the bag of blood. So the blood bank will have this thing called a blood irradiation machine. It's a bit like an x-ray machine for bags of blood. And they'll put the bag of blood in the machine and that will irradiate it. Now why do we want to irradiate it? Well, the bag of red blood cells will also have some white blood cells in it. Now the white blood cells are more like living cells. When you give the blood transfusion, if the white blood cells go into the patient, well, normally the patient would just kill off those white blood cells. They would recognize foreign white cells, kill off the white cells, no problem. With children on chemotherapy, their immune system isn't quite normal. It can be seriously impaired. So in that situation, the white blood cells can get into the bloodstream and continue to live, and even to proliferate, you know, to divide and multiply and become more frequent. And then what can happen is those white blood cells can attack the new person. This is something we've talked about in the bone marrow transplant podcasts, something called graft-versus-host disease. So that's where the white cells come into the patient and then attack the patient. Well, if we irradiate the bag of blood, well, that kills those white cells, it stops them from being able to divide, and it stops this from being able to happen. So in some blood banks, they irradiate all bags of blood that are being given to children on chemotherapy. In some units, I think they just irradiate it in the ones that have particularly higher levels of immune suppression. It would vary from unit to unit. And in an emergency, if there wasn't the capacity to irradiate blood, Sometimes we would have to use a transfusion without irradiating it. But most of the time, we would irradiate blood or platelets before we give them to the patient. The next thing in some situations would be to use blood that is CMV negative. So CMV is a virus, cytomegalovirus, CMV. Now about half the population, I think, have CMV infection at some point in their life. And most of the time, a CMV viral infection isn't much of a problem. I think they get a cold or something like that. The problem occurs in patients with an impaired immune system that CMV can cause a more serious infection. It can cause a bad lung infection, a bad eye infection, and it can cause a brain infection. So CMV is a virus that we would like to avoid in patients who are on chemotherapy. 
So we would normally test patients at initial diagnosis to see if they've got antibodies to CMV. And if they haven't got an antibody to CMV in their bloodstream, well, that means they haven't been exposed to CMV in the past. And so we would try not to expose them to CMV in the future. And in those situations, we would try to find blood or platelet units that come from a donor who is also CMV negative. And this is particularly important in the bone marrow transplant setting. It wouldn't necessarily apply as much in other areas of oncology, but particularly in patients who are having bone marrow transplants or the more extreme levels of chemotherapy, we would prefer to use blood products from donors who were CMV negative if the patient was CMV negative. So we would look to get blood products that are cross-matched with the patient that have been irradiated and that may be CMV negative and then the blood bank could issue this bag of red blood cells and we would go to the blood bank, collect it and then take it to the patient and proceed to administer the transfusion. Now at the bedside, again, we have to check over that this bag of blood is for this particular patient. whole lot of paperwork to go with it. Often we need two members of staff to go over the bag of blood, the unit number, the patient name, check the ID badges, check everything, make sure we're giving the right bag of blood to the right patient. Once all that's done, well basically the bag of blood gets hooked up to a drip and then it can be dripped in to the patient over a few hours. Now how much blood you're going to give varies. Many times a standard amount to give would be about 15 mils of blood for every kilogram of body weight. Sometimes we'd give a bit more, sometimes we'd give a bit less. If we had to go into a second bag of blood just to give the last 10 or 20 mils of blood, well, we probably wouldn't do it. But most of the time, it's about 15 mils per kilogram that we're giving. So if you're a, a, a big 70 kilogram person, you know, you might end up having two bags of blood, for instance, two units of blood. So that would represent the blood donation from two different individuals who donated blood at the blood bank. And like I said, a standard blood transfusion, it's given over a few hours, three or four or five. It's going to depend how much blood we're giving. You can't give it too fast or you can cause sort of fluid overload in the bloodstream. And usually the aim of the blood transfusion isn't to get their haemoglobin level back up to the normal range. No, mostly if it was, say, six or seven... We're happy if we get the haemoglobin up to about 9 or 10. We don't have to keep giving more and more bags of blood to get it right up to normal. Normally the patient will feel a whole lot better if the haemoglobin goes up to about 9 or 10 and then that's enough. Very often parents say, well, can I donate blood for my child? Or can our friends donate blood for our child? Now I must say that I don't particularly encourage this myself. Uh, in a modern blood bank... The blood that is collected from donors and that's been extensively screened, by and large, it's considered to be just as safe as blood that comes from a family donor. The other thing is that in the real world, it's a bit difficult to plan ahead when are we going to need a blood transfusion. And so we don't always have the luxury of planning ahead and having someone lined up to donate the blood to give it when we need it. The other thing, of course, is that parents need to look after themselves. Parents are under a lot of strain. 
They're working hard. They're up all night with their child. They're in hospitals. The drips are beeping all night. There's lots of noise. They're getting run down. You know, the last thing they need is to be donating blood, and that can contribute to them feeling overall run down. So most of the time, our blood banks haven't been that keen on it. In fact, in some settings, blood banks basically say, no, we don't offer that service of so-called directed blood donation, except in very particular and extreme circumstances where very obscure blood groups are needed and things like that. So not often done, I must say. So that's it about blood transfusions, really. First time we give a blood transfusion, well, most parents are a bit nervous, some are horrified, they don't like to see this happening, and that's fair, I get it. Eventually we often end up giving a lot of children a lot of blood transfusions, and I guess people eventually, well, they get used to it, uh, and it's not as anxiety-provoking. Remember that we're mostly giving blood transfusions to children whose haemoglobin has dropped because of chemotherapy side effects. can also be because leukaemia is infiltrating the bone marrow, of course, but mostly it's from chemotherapy side effects. We have to be very careful in labelling the blood samples properly and then checking the bag of blood when we give it. We normally give blood transfusions when the haemoglobin drops quite low, lower than you might have thought, maybe 6 or 7 or 8. And then we normally drip the blood in over 3 or 4 or 5 hours, depending on how many units of blood we're going to give and a few other factors. This normally brings the haemoglobin level up quite a bit, makes the patient feel a lot better, and oftentimes a blood transfusion like that will keep the haemoglobin level up for I don't know, a week or two or three. It depends on what the chemotherapy is and a whole lot of other factors. But it's not like platelet transfusions. You know, a platelet transfusion only lasts for a few days and then you have to have another one or start making your own platelets. Now, red cells last longer and so we don't tend to have to be giving them so frequently. They are a vital part of supporting someone through intensive chemotherapy. The reason that we can cure more children with cancer and leukaemia than we could decades ago is because we're giving stronger and stronger drugs and we can only give such strong drugs if we can support the patient through it. So transfusions are a critical component of supporting a patient through chemotherapy. So every time you meet someone at a dinner party who donates blood, say thank you very much. You are doing a very good job. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thanks again for tuning in to Understanding Childhood Cancer. Next episode, I'm going to talk about platelets. But for now, that's it from me. I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.